0: Good morning, everyone. My name is Matthew, and today's reading comes from Numbers chapter 27, verses 1 through 11. Please follow along in your own Bibles or simply listen as the scriptures are read. Again, that's Numbers chapter 27, starting with verse 1. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. Parents and guardians of children in preschool through fourth grade, you are invited to escort your kids... Um, to the front of the room to join Kids Commons outside. As you are able, we invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Hear the Word of the Lord. The daughters of Zelophehad, son of Hefer, the son of Gilead, the son of Makur, son of Manasseh, belong to the clans of Manasseh, son of Joseph. The names of the daughters were Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milcah, and Tirzah. They came forward and stood before Moses, Eleazar the priest, the leaders, and the whole assembly at the entrance to the tent of meeting, and said, Our father died in the wilderness. He was not among Korah's followers, who banded together against the Lord, but he died from his own sin, and left no sons. Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives. So Moses brought their case before the Lord, and said, and the Lord said to him, what Zelephahad's daughters are saying is right. You must certainly give them property as As an inheritance among their father's relatives, and give their father's inheritance to them. Say to the Israelites If a man dies and leaves no son, give his inheritance to his daughter. If he has no daughter, give his inheritance to his brothers. If he has no brothers, give his inheritance to his father's brothers. If his father had no brothers, give his inheritance to the nearest relative in his clan that he may possess it. This is to have the force of the law for the Israelites, as the Lord commanded Moses. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning. Welcome to Haveral Commons this morning. My name is Chrissy, and I'm on the preaching team here. It's always good to be together, to have an opportunity to worship God together as the people of God. As we do every week, I'd like to invite you just to take a moment and to pause, just to come present to all the things that you've brought with you this morning, and to allow God to speak into those places. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the ways that you invite us into your presence, that you are the one who calls and who draws. We thank you that you are with us, that you meet us here where we're at, in all the ways that we come and with all the things that we bring. So we invite you this morning to speak to us. Spirit, we ask that you would help us to hold on to the things that are good and that are from you and to let go of the things that are not. Be with us this morning and help us to be attentive to you in the words that we hear and in the ways that you might be nudging our hearts this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. The summer that I was 14, I went on a short term trip to Canton, Mississippi with my youth group. They had a long term partnership there with a local Christian nonprofit called In His Steps Ministries, which serves at risk children, juvenile offenders, and their families through a variety of approaches centered around intervention, prevention, family, sports, and compassion ministries. Our youth group went every summer to do two things in collaboration with In His Steps a home renovation project for a local family, and a vacation Bible school for kids in the Sawmill Quarter. Now, the Sawmill Quarter was an entirely black community, and it was just across the railroad tracks from downtown, an area known for drugs, violence, and gangs. That summer, we replaced a roof for a woman whose home was no longer weatherproof. And at VBS, we had a whole lot of fun with a whole bunch of kids who taught me a whole lot about the world that we live in, and what life can look like literally on the other side of the railroad tracks. Many of the children who came to VBS that summer came from homes where one parent was in prison, and the other had to work long hours just to provide. Kids were left to look out for each other, often ending up in gangs, which is why one of the ministries of In His Steps was targeted at engaging children in the sawmill quarters in healthy activities, in summer programs, sports, and after-school programs. While there, I also saw what it looked like to be left outside. Canton drew their city lines to exclude this all-black area of town, a practice called gerrymandering, which is just a big word for legal segregation. Practically, it meant that when there was a house fire while we were there, Canton only sent one truck, and not very quickly. Because while the sawmill quarters was essentially tucked into the heart of the city, it wasn't legally part of the city. So the fire was a county problem. And because they came from further away, it took another 20 minutes before county trucks arrived to help. Much too long to do much good for the family. Before I went to Mississippi that summer, I would have said that societal racism in the United States was was a thing of the 60s and the civil rights movement. I thought that, generally speaking, we were a country of equal opportunities. And I just assumed that justice was available to all. I mean, doesn't the Pledge of Allegiance I grew up reciting in school end with liberty and justice for all? That summer, everywhere I went, I got asked where I was from and what I was doing there. The Northern accent was a dead giveaway that I wasn't local. And every time I mentioned the sawmill quarters to someone who didn't live in the quarters, they felt the need to tell me, the naive out-of-towner, that a white girl shouldn't go there. Many of the local white Christians I met expressed similar sentiments. Missions was something to support overseas. Crossing into the sawmill quarters just wasn't something respectable people did in Canton. Why would we want to go there? perhaps not unlike some sections of Haverhill where people might ask the same question. There in Canton, I came face-to-face with the reality that sometimes life isn't fair. Not everyone has the same opportunities. That poverty is often not a choice or the result of laziness, but might have more to do with the systems and structures surrounding a person. That mothers in the sawmill quarters wanted the same opportunities in life for their children that my parents wanted for me. Education, a job, a chance for a stable and purposeful life. But they didn't have the same opportunities to get it. I was confronting a starkly unjust system in a way that I couldn't ignore or just explain away as the result of a few bad people. I couldn't explain why these awesome kids were more likely to end up in prison than going to college just by someone's bad choice. The structure of society was failing them, and I had no idea what to do with that. Have you ever experienced something like that? A moment when you thought you understood a complicated situation, but then you met someone who was actually living that situation. Someone recovering from addiction, or trying to build a new life after incarceration. Someone trying to get a better paying job, but who lacked the education and connections often needed to do so. Someone pushed aside because of stereotypes. How do we respond to people caught in these realities when we see and feel the injustice around us, but we're not quite sure where to begin? This week we're wrapping up a sermon series called Lessons from the Lesser Known, where we're looking at some of those blink-and-you'll-miss-it kinds of stories from the Bible and seeing what we can learn from these faces in the crowd. And this morning we're going to explore Numbers 27 to see the way that faith, lived out through action, can produce real and meaningful change in our spheres of influence. Now let's take a look at some background on this passage before we dive in, because there's a lot going on here. About 40 years prior, God brought his people out of slavery in Egypt with a mighty display of power, a pivotal moment in Israel's history called the Exodus. Now, after that, God's people were supposed to go into the land God had promised them, the land of Canaan. There was just one big problem. There were some really big, powerful people already living in the land, So when Moses sent 12 spies to scope it out, 10 of them came back and stirred up fear in the hearts of the people who refused to enter the land. Only Joshua and Caleb encouraged them to believe God and go. And because God's people refused to obey God and to enter the land, God told them they would wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire generation that disobeyed died off except for Joshua and Caleb. It would be their children who would take the land and who would possess it. So in the story we just read, the 40 years are over, and Israel is moving towards the promised land. And at the Lord's command, Moses takes a census of all the Israelite men, those who could serve in the army, but also those who would inherit the land. And that causes a problem a problem that the daughters of Zelophehad feel needs to be addressed. And for all of you looking for baby names right now, there you go, Zelophehad. In a nutshell, Zelophehad died in the wilderness like all of his generation, so he's not going to inherit land in the Promised Land. But his children are supposed to get it. But according to Israelite law, land goes to men, and Zelophehad doesn't have any sons. So in the census just taken, his family is going to miss out. Which begs the question, miss out on what? What does it mean to possess land in the people of Israel? At its heart, Israel's land laws, its whole system for land ownership and inheritance, was a system for economic and social justice and equality. When the land was divided out, it was divided by tribe, by clan, by family. And unlike many of the nations around them, Israel's land was not to be owned by a few wealthy kings or nobles with everyone else working subservient to them. The land belonged to God, and God gave it as a possession, as a special grant to all of God's people. And everything from the original distribution of land to the inheritance laws to a special provision called the year of Jubilee was designed to make sure that every Israelite family had the opportunity to own land and thereby to support their needs. Now, if a family fell in hard times and needed to sell a portion of their land, a family member or member of their clan was supposed to redeem it for them. And even if a family fell on such hard times that they sold all of their land and no family member was able to redeem it for them, and they now found themselves in such dire need as to sell themselves as laborers to another, for Israel, this was never to be a permanent state of affairs. Because every 50 years, God instituted the year of jubilee. Now, this was an amazing establishment to right wrongs. During the Jubilee, slaves were to be set free, and all land was to be returned to its original family owners. Whatever may have happened to a family for a generation or two, social and economic stability were to be restored to each family through the restoration of their freedom and their land during the year of Jubilee. This is what land meant for Israel, a place among the people of God and the chance for economic stability and provision. Essentially, Israel's whole land ownership system was their economic justice system. But the equality of this system was called into question by Zelophehad's lack of sons. For those of you who remember us preaching through Ruth a couple of months back, it's a very similar issue here. Like Naomi's husbands and sons had died without an heir to possess their family land and continue their family name, Zelophehad's family name was going to disappear and his family was going to miss out on their share of the land. So his daughters decide to advocate for justice for their father and their family. They approach Moses and the leaders and petition for a share of the land, saying, "'Why should our father's name disappear from his clan because he had no son? Give us property among our father's relatives.'" Before we get to Moses' answer, there are two things I want to pay attention to here. <laughs> First, remember, Israel doesn't possess the land yet. These women, Malah, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah, are requesting their father's share of the promised land before Israel actually possesses it. Unlike their father's generation, these women are so convinced that God is going to give Israel the land that they want to ensure their family will receive a share of it when God does. They are women of faith. Faith that God is a God who can and will keep God's promises. And second, although these women are asking to inherit land, which could sound a bit like, give me what's mine, their request is not entirely about themselves. It's bigger than that. While in English it all gets translated possession or inheritance, there are some nuances to the Hebrew words behind those, such that what the daughters are asking for is essentially to be custodians of their father's land to pass it on to their own sons. Again, sort of like Boaz acquiring the land of Elimelech to pass it on to Ruth's child. These women's request is less give us the land and more like let our family possess a grant of land just like other families in Israel. They're basically saying it's not right to erase our family line. We're still here. So Zalopahad's daughters bring the case to Moses who takes it to the Lord. And the Lord the one who set up Israel's land system to be a system of economic justice sees the justice of their request and gives them what they ask for. Yes, daughters of Zelophehad, you may possess your father's land to preserve his name and his place among my people. You will not be ignored and forgotten. But the Lord, the God of justice, doesn't just give these women their request. He makes it part of Israel's land laws, a new case law, the way things will be going forward to increase the justice of their economic system and to ensure that families in Israel, even the ones with no sons, are able to own land and thus retain their family's name and place within their clan and their people. Through their petition for justice, a whole new law is written in Israel written because Zelophehad's daughters advocated for what they knew was right. Their faith, lived out through their advocacy, changed Israel's law for the better, for them and for every other family in Israel like them. Okay, pause. Because I bet before this morning at least 90% of us had never heard of Mala, Noah, Hogla, Milka, and Tirzah. They're not big, flashy names or powerful people. They're just everyday women in a culture where men held most of the power. But they stepped up and they spoke up. And by doing so, they convinced God to change the laws of Israel to be more just. I always wonder at moments like this what God would have done if Zalofah's daughters had not spoken up. Would God have written this law anyways? Would someone else have brought it up? Or would Israel just have existed with a law less just because these women did not fight for change? Pure speculation, of course, but I can't help myself wondering sometimes. And while I'm not going to come up with an answer to that particular speculation, I do think this story gives us a very clear example of how we are called to respond to injustice. In it, we see God's deep concern for justice in everything from God's response to the petition of the daughters of Zelophehad to the widespread restoration of economic and social equality through the year of Jubilee. So when you see something that isn't right, Say something, do something. We see from stories like this that injustice isn't just the way God wants things to be. And we don't have to wait for someone more influential to fix it. We get to be the people of faith who act in faith. These lesser known women dared to believe that God's law could be more just, more loving, more equal, and they were willing to act boldly to make it happen. They advocated for a law that gives life, not a law that takes away. And Jesus does that with us, too. Right at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus walked into a synagogue, unrolled the scroll of Isaiah, and proclaimed, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he declared, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. In Jesus, we see God's ultimate answer to the problems of social and economic injustice, good news to the poor freedom for prisoners, healing, release for the oppressed, and the year of the Lord's favor. Like Zelophehad's daughters believed for the land they did not yet possess, we are invited to believe that one day all of these things will be a full and complete reality. But all we have to do is look around us to realize that while Jesus is God's ultimate answer to injustice, we still live in a world plagued by poverty, crime and prisons, disease and oppression. Like I saw in Mississippi as a teenager, children's life trajectory is still far too often designed solely by which side of the tracks they were born on. Closer to home, families all over Haverhill in our area are broken apart by poverty and drug addictions, let down by an overwhelmed system that isn't set up well enough to truly care for them. In Jesus, God is already restoring the brokenness of our world. But it is not yet fully restored. And we live in the in-between space. And that puts us right in the spot of Zelophehad's daughters. If we're Christians, we're God's people. And just like God brought the Israelites out of Egypt during the exodus redemption for God's people. We are also a redeemed people, set free through the sacrifice of Jesus. Which means that as the redeemed and restored people of a God of justice, we are invited to participate with God in bringing a restoration of justice to our neighborhoods, our cities, our workplaces, our schools. And I think this can look like everything from the largest arenas of our lives, the professions we choose or the places we live, to the smallest decisions that we make, what we buy, how we speak to someone. A couple of weeks ago, we sang the famous hymn, Amazing Grace, written by John Newton, a former slave trader who gave up the profession and became a clergyman after encountering Jesus on a stormy night at sea. Some years ago, there was a movie released by the same name, Amazing Grace, which tells the story of William Wilberforce, a contemporary of Newton, who was involved in the abolition of the slave trade in England. Shortly after becoming a member of the British Parliament, Wilberforce had what he described as a conversion experience, where he began to get up early to read his Bible, pray, and journal. In the wake of that experience, of regretting the ways he had wasted opportunities in his life, and of a new commitment to living his life for the glory of God, Wilberforce almost left Parliament. Perhaps, like some Christians today, who can be so put off by the ugly side of politics that we're tempted to abandon it altogether and put our energies somewhere more fruitful. However, counseled by those around him, including John Newton, Wilberforce instead chose to remain in Parliament, and to use his influence and position to advocate for justice and societal reform. Driven by his faith, Wilberforce became a staunch abolitionist, someone dedicated to completely getting rid of slavery. He's most known for being one of the driving forces behind the law which finally abolished the transatlantic slave trade in England. But he didn't stop there. Wilberforce also advocated for better education and prison reforms. And while he was by no means a perfect man, he was a man of courage and conviction, driven to action by faith in a God of goodness and justice. Now, right about now, you might be thinking, look, Chrissy, I'm not going to be the next William Wilberforce. And honestly, I feel that too. But I'd guess that Wilberforce also had no idea that his name would make history books, or his actions would change the shape of Western life and society. And while William Wilberforce is the name we've come to associate with the abolition of slavery in England, he didn't do it alone. It was a whole team of people, from ministers to politicians to businessmen and housewives, who created the movement that ultimately ended slavery. And you might not ever end up doing anything quite so dramatic as abolishing slavery. But that doesn't stop us from being people who seek justice everywhere that we are. We might not be able to change the laws of a whole nation, but what about the concerns of social and economic justice right in our neighborhoods and cities and workplaces? Are you a teacher? Be a just-minded teacher. Are you a neighbor or a landlord? Be a just-minded neighbor or landlord. Are you a parent? Be a just-minded parent. Are you a business owner, manager, or leader, a social worker, a coach, an electrician, an artist, a student? Be responsive to God's call to act justly in whatever role And whatever position you have, with whatever influence you already possess. If you see something that's not right, say something. Do something to make it better. I look around and I'm encouraged by all the ways I see so many of you already doing this. Opening your hearts and homes to foster and adopt children. Teaching and providing administration in an education system that doesn't always get it right, or make it easy because you believe in the importance of education for children around you. Providing medical care in the most holistic and just ways you know how, even when the system doesn't always support you in that. Raising children to notice and understand justice and what it looks like in the world around them, and in so many other ways, seen and unseen, big and small. So, if you're not quite feeling up to taking on national or global poverty this morning, what about volunteering to become a Haverhill Book Buddy, to encourage a third grader right here in Haverhill to fall in love with reading, promoting literacy and education? And if you're not sure you can take on a whole system of injustice or oppression, could you consider participating in your local elections this year? While national politics get all the headlines, many of the decisions that most affect our daily lives, decisions about the allocation of resources and the opportunities that those provide, happen at a local level. If we're going to, promote in, if we're going to live in cities that promote just and equitable opportunities for those who don't currently have them, whether through education, housing, job training, or any number of other ways, we're going to need leaders that understand and care about how to make those opportunities available. And for you, maybe it's something else. Maybe there's a decision at work, or a situation at school, where you have the opportunity to be the one who advocates for justice, for the flourishing and well-being of others. Do it. Sometimes justice, Real, societal level justice takes time and concerted effort and hard, hard work. Deeply ingrained systems of injustice don't change overnight. Wilberforce spent almost his entire adult life fighting for the abolition of slavery. The sawmill quarters of Mississippi, where I went 20 years ago, still aren't an oasis of peace and justice. But there is progress. Stories of hope and redemption. Lives changed from being on a path to crime and prison to living with hope and purpose and a means of providing for themselves and families. Restoration that wouldn't have happened without the efforts of In His Steps and all of the people that have partnered with them over the years. So this is our lesson from the lesser known this morning, from Zelophehad's Daughters. We have been redeemed by a God who cares about justice, who wants to see God's world and God's people flourishing. And in turn, we can be a people who promote that, who speak up when we see injustice, who advocate for those who have been pushed aside, who create and sustain systems that provide for and promote justice for all of God's people, and creation, a people who live and act boldly in the hope of good news for the poor, healing for the sick, freedom for the captives, and the year of the Lord's favor for all of creation. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you are a God who sees us. And a God who cares about justice. Who cares for your people and your world and all of your creation. We thank you that you see and appreciate and know the cares of our daily lives. The things that affect us day in and day out. That you are not far off, but that you hear the cries of our hearts. So Jesus, we ask this morning that you would help us to be people with our eyes open, who see the places in your world that are broken, and who have faith and courage to do something about it. I pray that you would meet each of us where we are this morning, in the places where we are encouraged by that, and in the places where that feels overwhelming and daunting, and we struggle to know what to do or how to act. Thank you that you have taken the first step. That you have come to us, that in the cross you have redeemed us, and that you are restoring all of creation and making all things new. I ask that you would help us to live in that hope this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.